We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by a second regular commentator, that being Donovan Smith in Taichung. And welcome to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing some interesting revelations and rumours about Taiwan's Somaliland ties, a contentious extraordinary legislative session to review control and examination UN nominees, talk once again of a visit to Taiwan by the Dalai Lama, the pending closure of Taiwan's first and only museum dedicated to comfort women, and a suggestion to rename Chinese medicine Taiwanese medicine. But we'll begin with President Tsai Ing-wen on Tuesday of this week, saying her administration will consider countermeasures to Beijing's newly implemented national security law for Hong Kong if such measures are necessary. The statement comes after it was revealed that the national security law states that authorities there can ask Taiwanese political groups to provide evidence in the investigation of potential violators. Tsai said the government is closely monitoring developments pertaining to the law, which she described as having many unacceptable contents. And she went on to say that if it becomes clear that the law has a negative impact on Taiwan and its people, the government will consider launching response measures. However, she didn't elaborate on what those countermeasures could be and simply warned the island's political parties to be on high alert over the Hong Kong national security law itself. Meanwhile, the Mainland Affairs Council on Thursday was urging Taiwanese nationals to avoid travelling to China, Hong Kong and Macau, citing the increased risk of prosecution on allegations of violating the Hong Kong national security law. With the Council's Deputy Minister Cho Chui Chung saying that the vaguely defined law can be interpreted broadly and that increases the risk of Taiwan passport holders facing possible prosecution as people could break the law without intending to. So Brian, of course, I hate to say this, mate, but you could well be a target of said law. So will you be popping off to China, Hong Kong or Macau in the coming weeks? I think not, particularly because of the coronavirus and having to undergo quarantine. But even with that um, and then with the new law, I think that's even less likely than I will go there. Um, one of the concerns raised about this is that, for example, Taiwanese passing through Hong Kong who may be, let's say, in support of Taiwanese independence could potentially be persecuted under this law as under the charges of sedition against the Chinese government, a charge that at maximum, according to this new law, could be lifetime in prison. Um, there's also concerns about the extraterritoriality of this law, the fact that it applies to anybody that can be accused of, of a sedition, uh, that even Hong Kongers outside of Hong Kong can be targeted by this law. And so then there are concerns about what happens to Taiwanese in Hong Kong, Taiwanese that are even just transiting through Hong Kong International Airport, per se, and then, then uh, that raises the possibility of danger to Taiwanese in Hong Kong. Um, and so their question then is, what countermeasures can the Taiwan nation take? Um, there has been calls to aid Hong Kong refugees. Uh, there has been the, a new office set up to assist Hong Kongers that hope to study, work, invest, or seek asylum in Taiwan. Uh, but then what else can the Thai administration do? Um, for example, Thai has po uh, proposed in the past suspending the special trade status that Hong Kong has um, and in effect treating Hong Kong as though we're part of China. This was framed as a means of, of economically punishing uh, China through removing Hong Kong's special status. But then the question is that does it actually help Hong Kongers and will this remove the threat to Taiwanese then from this national security law? Yeah, I, 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 the, really the only things I can add is uh, basically I think the president is taking the right approach because right now now, really what it all boils down to is how is it going to be implemented? And, and I, think, I, I think the president's right on this, is they're keeping a close eye on how it's going to be implemented. Obviously, this sends a chill because it not only targets anybody who might have – the law specifically says that anybody 
who threatens the national security, or I forget the exact wording, but basically says anything that the Chinese government doesn't like can be punished from any country. But it also has Article 43, which specifically states political entities in Taiwan need to report their activities in Hong Kong to the government there. So, the, for example, the DPP came out and stated yesterday there's not, a, you know, there's not a snowball's chance in hell they're going to comply with the law. But that sets that, that, that Taiwan political entities, meaning Taiwan political parties and activist groups, were specifically written into the law is kind of alarming. Um, the, the KMT's kind of waffled a bit on it, and of course the other political parties are dead set against it. Now, Another another thing that's interesting is that going back to 2018, Taiwan's representative to Hong Kong, the head of the Hong Kong office, hasn't been approved by the Hong Kong government. So it's essentially there's an acting head for the Taiwan office in Hong Kong. So things are really, I think, quite tense right now between Taiwan and Hong Kong. It was Brian. There was a story I read on the interweb. Apparently, a Chinese official was calling this a precursor to China's taking over Taiwan because it was going to use the Hong Kong model as a basis to base its taking over of Taiwan on. And the official said, or the pre former official was quoted as saying, that it'll act as a warning for people in Taiwan that they won't be able to do anything. They won't be able to declare independence. They won't be able to say anything bad about China on the fear that they'll be taken to Beijing to stand trial. Um, yeah, it's an unusual way of then trying to frighten Taiwan, particularly because this is actually a very old uh, statement. For example, one country, two systems as applied to Hong Kong was originally formulated to try to lure Taiwan into China's fold. And so one has seen this, this long-standing pattern of uh, policy applied to Hong Kong uh, with the possibility of eventually applying this to Taiwan. And the past, this is used to try to attract Taiwan to China. But in this case, I think it will actually have a deterrent effect. People will be afraid of closer ties with China, knowing that this is the possible consequence. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, agreeing with Donovan, that this is, is quite early to see what will happen. It's much more clear right now what the effect on Hong Kongers and Hong Kong organizations will be. Uh, one has seen activists leaving organizations, cutting ties, organizations dissolving, um, announcing they will cease uh, activities supporting Hong Kong independence. But then it's a bigger question as what happens to Taiwanese in Hong Kong, for example. Uh, for example, DPP members, if they travel to Hong Kong, and the DPP is, of course, the large political party, let's say a rank-and-file member, uh, they travel to Hong Kong, will they be targeted, for example, with the view that DPP is an organization that supports Taiwanese independence. That is not out of the question, actually, but will actually China do this? This is a question. Um, in the course of the past year, there have been cases of Taiwanese arrested after participating in protests in Hong Kong, but this was after passing to China, after traveling to China. Will this occur in Hong Kong now, within Hong Kong itself? That's a bigger question. Yeah, I mean, those are all excellent points. I mean, and, you know, we can add to this that already a lot of people have been banned from going to Hong Kong in the last few years. I mean, you know, people like Freddie Lim, and and you have people who, you know, staged intentional provocative visits, like Wu Kai-shi. He would go to Hong Kong and try to get into China to see his family. Uh, and I don't think that's going to happen anymore. Um so definitely, but I think that a lot of those views that, that you're talking about where people are saying, uh, so, okay, Taiwan is next. I think a lot of that is based on the idea that China's thinking at this point is, okay, now we've got Hong Kong under control, therefore what's next? And we don't really know that yet. We don't know if how Hong Kong is going to respond. We still don't know if 
they do have Hong Kong under control the way that they'd be happy to. And we really don't know what their next priority is. Is it possible that Taiwan is next on their priority list? Certainly it is. But they've also got a lot of things going on in the South China Sea, India, uh, with Japan, and uh, you know a lot of these border irritations that they keep stoking. So we really don't know yet for sure. And so it's really kind of speculative at this point. That's right. And that's what's concerning about Hong Kong, perhaps, because it does seem as though the Chinese government is willing to risk Hong Kong's special economic status in order to maintain political control. Hong Kong is, of course, a financial center, and uh, passing the security laws could actually affect business. Uh, there are concerns that people that just travel to Hong Kong to do business could be taken in on arbitrary political charges. Uh, there are increasing concerns that as China's financial markets have a downturn, even as accurate reporting on statistics could get you in trouble. And so then that, that raises questions. How will that uh, affect, for example, Hong Kong as an international finance hub. And it could be that China decides it's replaceable. And that raises concerns for Taiwan because why does China want Taiwan then? Part of it is the economic reasons. But if actually China is willing to risk uh, disrupting Taiwan's economy, then China will be willing to take more provocative actions against Taiwan. And that, that, that raises possibly that China will have a hardening stance towards Taiwan as time goes on. And that Hong Kong will be used not as a, a, a way to lure Taiwan in on the basis of an example to be emulated uh, in terms of, let's say, it's being free and being able to maintain its democratic rights and autonomy and so forth, but as a negative example in terms of just, this is what will happen to you if you do not just agree now to unify. Something interesting I saw, actually, is that apparently right about the same time that they put in the, the new national security law, uh, China also opened up cross-investment to the Pearl River Delta area which means that uh, places like Shenzhen, you know, Guangdong, they they can now, there's a lot more ability to to uh, be able to invest into Hong Kong and Hong Kong into the Pearl River, River Delta. So they seem to also be trying to shore up the financial center element there. There's a, there's a lot of money in that area. So they seem to be trying to continue to keep Hong Kong as a financial center. I don't know what, how effective it'll be, but they passed that law, so obviously they have their eye on that. Moving on, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week reiterated Taiwan and Somaliland's intention to deepen bilateral ties. The statement followed reports that Beijing is attempting to stop the self-declared African state from establishing any form of ties with Taiwan. Now, reports from Somaliland, from the Somaliland Chronicle publication, say that Chinese officials travelled to Somaliland twice. And the Chinese officials, which included its ambassador to Somalia, apparently met with Somaliland's president and the country's Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation during those visits. And sources are quoted as saying that Chinese officials offered to open a Chinese liaison office in Somaliland's capital if it halted all activities with Taiwan. Now, government officials in Somalia also released a statement denouncing the establishment of ties between Somaliland and Taiwan, describing the move as a violation of Mogadishu's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Now, the foreign ministry didn't directly comment on those reports, either about the Chinese embassy in Somalia or Mogadishu's statement on the matter, but it did say that efforts to deepen bilateral cooperation were based on long-standing friendships between people and universal values such as freedom, democracy, justice and rule of law. Blah, 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 nothing new there. However, there were reports, or rather one sentence in numerous reports which is appearing in numerous publications, which claim that Taiwan is planning to open a military base in Somaliland. So, Donovan, I mean, the military base is probably very pie in the sky, as it only made one sentence. But, of course, China is trying to stop Somaliland from creating ties with Taiwan. Yeah, it seems unlikely to me. I mean, 
it's something that you know I looked into it a little bit, and it seems to be basically it was a it was the Taiwan News reported on a report that was in the French in French language media, which had quoted unnamed sources. So we really don't know. But an interesting question, though, is there was a few a few months ago. It was either in uh, the either CNA reported or the Taipei Times, is that. Taiwan is training military forces in the Middle East, but and this was something that was official, but it wasn't stated which country it was. So there are some lingering questions on it, but there's not a whole lot of clear logic as to why Taiwan would want a military base there, outside of the fact that Taiwan is a major shipping country. And there is piracy in the area, but other countries are handling that. So the logic of it seems a little pie in the sky. Um, another thing that I, th- I found very interesting is you'll notice that the wording is that they created a representative office. However, in, if you look in, in local media reports, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is quoted in articles saying, you know, we've exchanged representative offices, blah, 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 blah. But then on Twitter, it very specifically welcomes and they, the the guy who's been uh, appointed the representative to Taiwan, they refer to him as ambassador in the tweet. And the you know there was some question during you know when they first made the announcement, some reporters pressed Joseph Wu, the foreign minister, and he said, yes, you know Somaliland is an independent country. So there's a lot of murkiness here on on exactly what is the status of the offices that the two countries are creating. It appears that they are both setting up simply representative offices, and it's not formal diplomatic recognition. But the door seems open, or they're moving in that, that direction. We, I, don't, I don't really know, and it's very puzzling. That's right, and there's actually very few precedents for this, because they, particularly because of the fact that Somaliland is not recognized as an independent country from Somalia, um, despite having its own government and, and so forth. And so it does seem like things are moving in the direction of stronger diplomatic relations, that's to be sure, but some it is maybe premature speculation based on just exchanging representative offices. However, I think China's response actually is indicative of how there are there is this strong belief that actually some, Somaliland and Taiwan could move towards some form of diplomatic relations. Um, I think these kind of responses from China are not surprising, but also raise the question to me why exactly Somaliland decided to uh, build ties with Taiwan. It could be with uh, eye on that Taiwan fought off COVID-19 successfully. Um, smaller countries sometimes are hoping for technological or medical assistance from Taiwan, uh, particularly small island nations such as Palau, for example. Um, or it could just be actually part of a um, dollar diplomacy, just perhaps balancing back and forth between Taiwan and China in order to see who offers the best deal. That's not impossible, and I think for particularly a small country lacking resources, that is actually maybe a good option. Um, so I think I wonder if even speculation is uh, premature. Um, regarding the claims that Taiwan is establishing a military base there, that is quite premature. And I think the, the claims in French media originated from one website, which had many broken sections on the website, raising questions for me whether this was a news site at all. But somehow this became widely cited after appearing in the Taiwan News report. And so that's, that's one of those questions. Why would you provoke China by establishing this base there? And also, just why do so many people circulate a badly sourced claim? Because it was China has a base in Djibouti. That's right. Yeah, it's right next yes, door, but yeah. it, would not, it would not make a lot of sense to invite reprisals for that when Taiwan doesn't really have much to gain by building a military base, a port perhaps. Um, and again, as Donovan mentioned, is perhaps for, for fighting against piracy in the region. But it seems just like a generally a bad idea. I mean, a Taiwanese military base next to a Chinese military base 
Taiwan is not going to be, out, be able to outspend China, particularly because this is a significant port to China in Africa. And, and uh, in terms of advancing, just building uh, kind of bases around the world for China as a political project, this is one of the early precedents. So China would take a very strong stance against any Taiwanese military base in Somaliland. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I, I can add that the, apparently Somaliland and Taiwan have been cooperating for a while, um, and probably for a lot of the reasons that Brian cited, that you, Taiwan's assistance in various areas is, is quite helpful. And apparently they have been cooperating in fields of public health, energy, mining, education and agriculture. There you go. There you go. There you go. There you go. Anyway, lawmakers this week began holding legislative committee meetings to discuss President Tsai Ing-wen's nominations for the control and examination UNs. Now, Tsai's nominees to head the two government branches are somewhat controversial, or at least that's what the opposition is arguing. Former Presidential Office Secretary General and Kaohsiung Mayor Chen Ju has been nominated to head the control UN and its newly established National Human Rights Commission, while former Education Minister Huang Rongcun is Tsai's nominee to head the examination. UN, which, if you didn't know, is the government body in charge of validating the qualifications of civil servants. Now, while the KMT had attempted to delay the current extraordinary legislative session and vote on the nominees by occupying the Speaker's podium on June the 28th in protest over Chen Ju's nomination, that occupation proved very short-lived and, needless to say, the session and reviews got underway as scheduled. Now, the KMT is urging that Chen Ju is unfit to head the government watchdog because the control UN, in fact, launched 58 investigations into her administrative team during her tenure as Kaohsiung mayor from 2006 through 2018. Now the KMT says those investigations raise questions about Chen's qualifications to lead the government watchdog. And of course there's also questions over Chen Ju's neutrality which is sort of a prerequisite to handling the control UN as its boss. While Huang's nomination to the examination UN is facing questions as opposition lawmakers are concerned that he could use his position to actually abolish the examination UN if he were confirmed at its head. So, Brian, there we go. Can Chenju controversy? <laughs> this has continued. Uh, the KMT has taken a very hard line against Chenju, taking up a position as head of the control room. Um, so, this is interesting to me on several fronts. Uh, for example, I think the KMT particularly begrudges Chenju as a former democracy activist, going back to the Danghuai movement and the democracy movement. And the KMT sometimes does think the charge of corruption is a very easy way to get former democracy movement activists, uh, perhaps taking the example of President Chen Shui-bian as the, the big target who first charged charge of corruption after the end of his presidency and was then arrested, and that this was perhaps a way to attack other former democracy activists from the DPP. Um, on the other hand, it's indicative of the fact that this is where the KMT sees a point of attack um, at present, uh, particularly leveraging on the fact that Han Guo's won as Kaohsiung mayor after Chen Zhu left office by such large margins over um, over Chen Ximai. And so I think in this, in, because of this, actually, the KMT is still leveraging on that as its last major success, and that's why it's still leveraging on attacking Chen Zhu, believing that perhaps it's a way to make inroads into the South, as a way to change the party's image to build a new uh, support base, and believing that Chen Zhu is actually highly unpopular, and this will be a popular issue. I mean, I think that's a miscalculation, but the KMT is actually just leveraging very hard on this at present, and it's quite interesting that way. I, I think for the KMT, there's two things that are going on. One is, um, and to, to add what Brian had to say, is that they, I think that they, they have an allergic reaction to Chen Zhu because she was, uh, she was so crucial to the democracy movement and to the founding of the DPP. And they're well, well aware that in, in some cases, Within the DPP, there were some that, that you know, wanted to promote, promote a multi-party system, but some uh, in the DPP, when the, when the party was founded, specifically wanted to, to abolish the KMT. 
So I think that there is kind of a, a feeling of existential fear of her. And it's important to, to note that the Control UN is a watchdog investigative body to look into misdeeds in, in government. And that can, that can impact, for example, a lot of the local KMT governments. On the other hand, the the second thing I think that they're they're looking at here is 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 that they are pointing out that she is a partisan figure, and on that they're right. Uh, Chen Zhu, as head of the Control UN, is a terrible choice if you want to have an inv- independent investigative body to have somebody that obviously partisan is dubious. Now the KMT themselves. We had hugely partisan choices when they were in power, and they tried to kick. They, they threatened to kick out um, the the one member that was a that was appointed by the Thai administration to be the deputy head uh, from the KMT. They threatened to kick him out. So the, obviously, there's some you know there's some hypocrisy going on here. But they are right in the fact that if this is going to be an, if this is an independent investigative body such a highly obviously partisan pick is not very good. On the other hand, though, the Control UN is now going to double as a, they've going, they're setting up under that a National Human Rights Commission. And Chen Zhu, being a former political prisoner and having devoted her life to the, the issue, she's excellent for heading up that. So it's kind of uh, kind of a, a dual thing going on here. As far as the human rights thing, Chen Zhu is the perfect choice to head that up. As for the the control UN, the KMT is right that this is too partisan of a choice for an independent investigative body. And of course, Brian, there's been calls on both sides of the aisle to actually abolish the control UN. That's right. And so it's funny that we're having this debate when both uh, sides have called for abolishing the control UN and the examination UN. But this has been a long-standing uh, political issue that has just not been resolved. And so that's why you continue to have controversies about who gets nominated there. Um, but in the sense, it is, is one of the unusual things of Taiwan having a five-fold uh, division of political power between political branches, and this being the system of checks and balances. Um, and so then I think that just the KMT will continue to leverage on the issue, that there will tune to be controversy about this. And yes, it is incredibly ironic that the DPP actually did try to be bipartisan in spite of these criticisms of the KMT that it was too partisan in naming Justin Huang as, as the deputy head of the control room. But then there's backlash then from the KMT. And so attacking Chen Zhu as a partisan, a politically, too part, politically partisan a figure, is then, I think, quite hypocritical, but I think that's to be expected, maybe. Because, of course, uh, Justin Huang was another odd choice, considering he has a bit of a history of um, that's right. corruption and charges exactly. and yeah, corruption charges. charges yeah. Exactly. But mm, bipartisanship, I guess, that rules over that. <laughs> and what about the examination you end, Brian? I mean, you know, many people don't know what it does. Mm-hmm. That's right. I think the functions of the examination run will have to be preserved in some form insofar as this affects education and educational policy. But then one wonders then what is the kind of, uh, where does this overlap with the Ministry of Education and where does this differ? And so having this as an entire branch of government is is unusual. Um, and I think that I'm not sure that's particularly necessary at the present. But then when you do have someone that is drawn from more of a pan blue background, you do have accusation this will be used by the KMT to advance a uh, pro-China view of history, for example, in terms of teaching and so forth, and in terms of uh, testing and what is what what students are tested on, um, what vi- what vision of Taiwanese history is evaluated in the educational system, and so this has been controversial in the past regarding particularly the Ministry of Education as well, or textbook changes and so forth. And both sides ha- uh, will make this a partisan political issue in either attempting to put in their preferred version of history or attacking individuals from the other political camp and claiming that they're attempting to do this and this is not objective and so forth. 
And of course, Donovan Tsai Ing-wen, during her re-election -re speech, did talk about her plans for the examination UN. And she said, you know, what well, we might not scrap it, we could scrap it, we haven't decided, but we are going to basically revamp it. So it's, it's more in line with modern government. Well, I, you know, with the, executive, the examination you're in, the, the worry that I, that I have about it is the message it sends to school children that you have an entire branch of government dedicated to testing. Um, <laughs> but the, what's interesting is you'll notice that the DPP in the past has talked about abolishing both of these, the, the control UN and the examination UN. But officially right now, during this legislative session, they've been pretty quiet, although Yoshi Quinn, the legislative speaker, apparently came out on Facebook and said that he was for it, abolishing them. But they've been a little bit quiet, the DPP caucus. However, the TPP, the NPP, and the KMT have all come out for abolishing it. Now, right now, during this current legislative session, it won't be addressed, but it, it's fundamentally a constitutional issue, so that there's a lot of hurdles that, that it has to go through. If the DPP is on board, this will happen. And during the legislative session slated to start in September, uh, the DPP, which of course has a, a, a large majority, has already indicated that that's when they're going to start to talk. They're going to form a legislative, a constitutional reform committee in the legislature. So there's a very good chance it will be brought up in that, and that's when they'll start to address it. But the, the, the DPP has been surprisingly quiet on what side of the fence they're on. Now, as for the new head of the examination, Yuan, that was appointed by President Tsai, uh, he came out and said he will try and basically try and do the job, but if the examination Yuan is going to be removed, he will oversee the process of its, uh, its elimination. So it smells to me like the DPP is planning on or will support the removal of the two, but they haven't officially come out and said it. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Anyway, welcome back to Taiwan This Week and talk of the Dalai Lama possibly visiting Taiwan popped up again this week after the Tibetan spiritual leader expressed an interest in travelling to Taiwan in a video birthday message to his supporters here last weekend. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs says it will handle any application for the Dalai Lama to visit Taiwan under relevant rules, with Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Joanne O oh saying an application for a visa from the office of the Dalai Lama to visit Taiwan has not yet been received, but she went on to say that such a request will be handled in a court with the principle of mutual respect and at a time of convenience for both sides. However, that response wasn't good enough for some, as independent lawmaker Freddie Lim decided this week to revive the Taiwan Parliamentary Group for Tibet to urge the government to fully be supportive of the idea of allowing the Dalai Lama to pop over to Taiwan for a quick visit. Now, according to Lim, 46 lawmakers from across party lines have now rejoined the legislative group, and Lim told reporters that the government needs to issue a more explicitly welcoming message and should welcome the Dalai Lama at a time it is convenient for him to visit Taiwan. So, Brian, there we go, the Dalai Lama. We've talked about this on the show numerous times before, saying, will he come, won't he come? So, will he come, won't he come this time? 
this is one of the stories that pops up continuing in the news and uh, where Taiwan news is concerned, I believe. And so it's again come up this time. Um, I do wonder actually if this is somewhat just political theater, particularly because borders are closed at the present. And if the Dalai Lama came to Taiwan, then he would perhaps have to quarantine for 14 days. I don't know if he actually has the time to do that or to commit to uh, over 14 days than in Taiwan um, just to visit. Um, Freddie Lim is someone that has pushed this issue historically. It's well known that he is a strong supporter of Tibet uh, from his days as an activist to his uh, taking up a position as legislator. And so he has been the one that's been pushing for visits from the Dalai Lama in the past. He has launched petition campaigns about this in, in the past as well. And it's now he has now uh, building a kind of coalition in the legislature to call for this. And a lot of it's the kind of usual suspects. Uh, people are from a background in activism. Uh, for example, Hong Shunhan, the DPP legislator, Fan Ring, formerly of the Social Democratic Party, um, uh, Chen Boy of the Taiwan State Building Party, and so forth. Uh, and so these political actors, it's not surprising that we call for the Dalai Lama to visit in Taiwan. Um, it's also surprising this time that Tsai Mission seems a little more enthusiastic on the idea. And so there will be questions then, will there actually be any action for the Dalai Lama to visit Taiwan? What's interesting is that actually right, right now in modern history, the Thai presidency is the only one that hasn't seen a visit by the Dalai Lama. I'm surprised he hasn't come already. Um, but if he comes, I'm, uh, the, but obviously the, the government here has made it pretty clear they, they'll allow him in. The real interesting question and the test for Taiwan politically is whether President Tsai will meet with him personally. That's the big question. I mean, even Maing Zhou let, let, uh, let the Dalai Lama come, come and visit Taiwan. Um, but the, there, there is a political statement to China if the president meets with the Dalai Lama. And I think that's, that's what everybody will be watching. I mean, obviously, in the short term of the quarantine and all that, um, you know, I don't think it's going to happen. But that's being discussed under, and, uh, and considering right now that the big topic is, of course, the new national security law in Hong Kong. And it could be that anybody who actually even meets with the Dalai Lama could be arrested in Hong Kong now. So I think that kind of colors the current situation. So I have a, the, I'm curious as to why or what the Dalai Lama had in mind by, by specifically saying he'd like to come and visit Taiwan. I wonder if he has an agenda with that or if that was just off the cuff. I think, Brian, maybe he was just a nice guy making a comment. <laughs> it's possible. Um, I think he would not turn down a visit, but it's a question, would he actually visit? Um, I think that's also a, a question worth raising. Um, so he did visit in 1997, 2001, and 2009, uh, which was uh, last one of which was under Ma though Ma initially refused to allow him to visit in 2008. Um, so it's actually surprising that Tsai has not done this sooner, and I think that a lot does depend on the calculated political risk of whether you would actually possibly invite reprisals from China if you do allow them to visit. Um, so I met with him in 2009, but she doesn't actually, for example, take out the photos too often and use this to show that uh, she is strong and supportive to Tibet or whatever. It's not something she really leans into, though she did meet with him uh, during that previous visit. And so I think that's a question. And I think that is would the Thai mission decide that now is a really opportune moment to do uh, to allow for him to visit? And would the Dalai Lama himself decide this is politically advantageous to visit Taiwan at present for his own interests? And I think that's would do these interests coincide? And that's, that's maybe the the biggest question as to whether this visit would take place. I just had this funny image when you said lean, <laughs> lean into it of, uh, of the Dalai Lama and Tsai, Tsai wearing the KMT shirt, which says lean forward. <laughs> <laughs>
And we'll, we'll move on in that comment. Okay, here we go. Anyway, to some sad news because Taiwan's first and only museum dedicated to comfort women is set to close in November due to financial difficulties. Now, the closure of the Armar Museum comes only four years after it actually opened. Now, the Taipei Women's Rescue Foundation says the museum has basically incurred losses of between 4 and 5 million NT a year since it opened in December of 2016 and the financial situation has only worsened due to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, the foundation does say, though, 125,000 people have visited the museum over the time, including officials from human rights organisations from around the world, winners of human rights awards, and it's also hosted several international forums on comfort women issues. Now, the interesting thing about this museum's closure is the fact that, well, both the current political party that's in power and the current opposition party have both made great hay of the comfort women issue, Brian. So it's it's hard to imagine how it can't find funding from either both political parties, the government or people that support these political parties. Uh, that's absolutely right. And it's very disappointing that it's closing because this is an important moment in Taiwanese history, a, a historical tragedy that is not remembered enough. And so, for example, the KMT leaned into this issue um, because of the fact that this is a way to criticize Japan, uh, to, to bring up the memory of Japanese colonialism and the brutalities that did occur under this. Because there is, unfortunately, I think, the idealization of the Japanese colonial period, particularly from the Pan-Green camp. And so former President Ma Ying-jeou was present at uh, the opening of this museum. But at the same time, so is Zheng Li-Jing, the Minister of Culture, uh, who is part of the Tsai administration. And so both political camps have made shows of supporting this museum. But then when it actually comes to funding and subsidies, uh, and means to allow this museum to continue to survive, actually, this has not really happened. And I think actually, particularly because of this, the sensitivity of this issue, the museum has been kind of uncomfortably wedged between the Pan Blue and the Pan Green camps, in which actually it can be used, for example, by the Pan Blue camp as a way to criticize Japan, as a way to throw a wrench into, let's say, Taiwan-Japan relations. But then the Pan, uh, but then it's using the issue as for political purposes in the present uh, without actually hoping to kind of keep the memory of this alive. And the other, on the other side, the Pan-Green camp sometimes doesn't want to bring up this issue, uh, precisely because it is still an issue that is sensitive in Japan, and because the present political administration in Japan, the Abe administration, is somewhat in historical denial of this happened. Um, the museum has called on the Japanese government to apologize, has demanded measures be taken uh, for former comfort women, and this is something the Abe administration has found very politically inconvenient. It's become an issue in relations between the Japanese government and South Korea, for example, and other former colonies of Japan during the Japanese colonial administration. And so that's that's one of the real shames of things. this, I think. And that's another why it's so disappointing why political parties have not actually taken action to assist the AMA Museum. Yeah, I think I can, I can make, put that in a shorter, a shorter way. Essentially, the, the, the KMT, when, because the, of their history of the, the brutal uh, war in China when they fought Japan, the the Japanese to them have kind of continued to be an enemy, and so the the comfort women issue for them, particularly from the elites from families who came over in 1949, there's a bitterness and an anger there, and they sometimes use this to, as an as an the the issue as an irritant in Japan relations because they 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 tend to skew a bit more toward China. And they've always viewed the Japanese with suspicion, whereas the DPP uh, looks at the uh, Japan, uh, Japan relations as something that can help under, uh, you know, uh, that can help keep Taiwan sovereignty, Taiwan independence uh, uh, from China, and as a friend and bulwark against the Chinese. So the DPP sometimes will kind of push these issues under the rug. Um, but another issue that also comes up is that the KMT, when they came over, 
there was a period when they had something very similar to comfort women, our sex slaves, when during the martial law era, and nobody really kind of addresses that issue either. And that's a, that the museum never really touches on, because in part the uh, the women who, are, who were the sex slaves during that period don't really want to talk about it. But also it's politically an issue which the nobody really wants to talk about because because it did happen in the modern era. Uh, that's right, and there have been some films addressing that. Uh, the KMT's own history of using comfort women, for example, um, but there has not been a reckoning with that issue. And so that's that's another one of these issues. And I think that particularly when you do concern yourself with the matters of historical memory, um, whether from the Japanese colonial period or the KMT uh, authoritarian era, these issues very quickly become very politically sensitive. History is oftentimes a political battleground. And so one sees this, for example, with uh, different museums that have been set up in Taiwan to remember the White Terror and uh, how the Japanese colonial memory is depicted in museums of general, generally just Taiwanese history. Um, there's oftentimes fighting over how you refer to it, for example, in terms of phrasing. Um, and this becomes a, a difficult issue between the pan-green and the pan-blue camps, particularly because many national museums will then change their historical narrative depending on who is in power. And so with a museum like the Alma Museum, which has tried to be independent, there are always these these minefields to navigate, and that becomes difficult, uh, particularly when it comes to securing sources of funding from governments or from individuals or from organizations as well, because sometimes you do actually have to draw from a political camp or people affiliated with a political camp in order to have the funding to survive. And so I think that's, that's, that's one of the issues here. And before we go this week, Legislative Speaker Yoshi Kun told attendees at the 2020 Taipei Traditional Chinese Medicine International Forum earlier this week that the term Chinese medicine should be changed to Taiwanese medicine in order to differentiate Taiwan and China. Now, according to Yo, South Korea and Vietnam have localised terms to describe Chinese medicine, while Japan uses the term hand medicine and omits the word, well, for China. And Yo said if Taiwan opted to do the same, it could help stamp out confusion about the island's sovereignty. So, Brian, when you go to the Taiwanese medicine doctor, will you be <laughs> expecting the same medicine as from the Chinese medicine doctor? I wonder. I think people will be confused. Or perhaps this could be a way to make Taiwan seem like some offering some kind of new undiscovered medicine for people to find. I mean, people talk about traditional Chinese medicine, TCM, across the world. I think people would be confused by traditional Taiwanese medicine, TTM. Like, what is this thing? What is this acronym? What does it stand for? Uh, and so forth. Um, and so I think this is another one of those issues that Yo, as a uh, member of the Pan Green Camp, is pushing for just changes in terms of naming organizations or institutions or longstanding practices. But will this actually get off the ground? Is it practical? That's another question. Historically, actually, Taiwanese referred to it like the Japanese did, and in, in China itself as, as Han medicine, uh, which is Chinese in not so much the country sense, but as in the, uh, the people sense. Um, and it was only really under the, the KMT when they were working toward sinifying or making Taiwan more Chinese so that everyone would be excited and enthusiastic to reclaim the mainland that it, they really kind of used, they, they used Chinese in that way. So that's kind of, in, at least in speaking of Mandarin, that's, that's kind of a Taiwanese thing that the KMT imposed. Whereas in China, in Japan, and traditionally Taiwan, I'll always refer to it using the term Han. 
Of course, the suggestion did get a mixed reaction, Brian, with some people saying the Legislative Speaker possibly had too much time on his hands and should possibly be focusing on more pressing matters. Uh, perhaps. I mean, the issue, actually, it is a term used in China, Hanshu, uh, but this is actually usually translated just into English as traditional Chinese. And so it's, it is a term, but this is not used actually particularly in English. Um, with regards to that, there are a lot of institutions in Taiwan that are referring to Chinese. For example, uh, organizations for Taiwanese artists or photographers or painters will refer to themselves as Chinese artists or photographers and so forth. But regarding TCM, this is actually something that is specifically associated with Taiwan in many cases internationally. And so I wonder if actually uh, Yo is just bringing this up without particular awareness of how this term is deployed worldwide. Maybe he does have time on this he, hands, he, he was at a meeting of traditional Chinese medicinal groups. That's right. So and I, I wonder he, how they reacted to that. Um, it's, it is something that people have been there was, confused there, by. There was a great quote in one of the papers from some chat from one of those groups saying, oh, we'll think about it. <laughs> That's right. Which I thought was quite polite, really. I'm sure he went home and scratched his head and shook his head and went, what the blazes was that all about? <laughs> anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith in Taijong. And great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.